Thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Cast, the official podcast of Coryton Church. As a Christian, it's important that you can answer this first question. Have you lost your first love? This is episode six in the Revelation series with Dr. Rocky Ramsey. In chapter two, we see that the Ephesian church has lost its true love for Christ. Let's find out why. Now, you should know by now it's a lot easier to do what you shouldn't do than it is to do what you ought to do. Our choices have consequences. These seven churches, Jesus says, if you don't do this, I'll remove your lampstand. None of these seven churches exist today. Every church is simply a generation away from closing its doors. Revelation 1.19, if you're there, gives us an outline of this book. It talks about what John had seen, which is the risen Christ there in chapter 1. It talks about the thing, then it says, the things which are, which are these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place after these things, which take us into the tribulation and into eternity in uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse uh, 4 through chapter 22. Now, these seven churches are seven actual churches that are no longer in business. I've actually been to the ruins at Ephesus. There are many who think that these seven churches also represent seven, the seven ages of the church. If that's possibly true, we could be in that last stage because Laodicea, as you'll, uh, when we get there, you'll see, was a church that was lukewarm. And so uh, maybe, maybe not. The city of Ephesus was one of the most prominent cities in the world when Christ wrote to these churches through John. It was significant commercially because of its location. Now it's about a mile inland because the oceans have subsided. But in those days, it was actually a seaport. It was significant politically because it was a free city. Romans had given them the right of self-government. Unlike uh, Israel and uh, Jerusalem, Roman soldiers did not walk the streets of Ephesus. It was significant socially because it hosted the Panionian Games, which was another game similar to the one that's lasted all these years, the Olympic Games. Games. It was significant religiously because there it had the Temple of Diana, also called the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, longest place he ever stayed. There he taught the word He's in the school of Tyrannius for two years. Then he preached in the synagogues, and after about three months, he was run out of town. If you look later at Ephesians or Acts chapter 19, you'll see that it was in Ephesus that uh, these two men tried to cast out a demon by Jesus whom Paul preached. And the demon said to the men, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but we don't know you. And they beat him up and stripped him. So they left him literally naked and wounded. I thought that's a pretty funny story. In the same chapter, it's in Ephesus that the people came together and burned all their magic books. It was there that Demetrius, the silversmith, who made idols for the temple of Diana and Artemis, uh, started a riot because Paul was bringing people to Christ. They were giving up their idols and it was hurting his business. 
So 30, 30 or so years later, the church at Ephesus receives this letter from John. So turn your Bibles to Rome, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 7. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I do too, which I also hate. Verse 7, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now in your outline, some opening thoughts. Number one, the lampstands are symbols of the churches. If you'll go back to chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, and verse 20, you see this very clearly. Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven churches in that vision. Number two, the stars are symbols of the pastors of those churches. You look at verse 16 and 20 of chapter 1. Some think it's angels, an angel's a messenger. Most people think these are the pastors of those churches. Number three, each of the letters contained the following. And I've got six things under that. Number one, a command to write to them. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel at the church of Ephesus, write. Number two, there's a description of Jesus. You find this in verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All of the churches but one, this portion of it comes out of that vision in chapter 1. Number three, there's a declaration that Jesus knows. That Jesus knows. Verse 2, I know your deeds. Number four, there's a statement about the condition of the church. And you see this in verses 2 to 4 and then 6. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, Verse 6, uh, but this you, do, this you do have. Well, then he says in verse 4, but you've left your first love. Verse 6, another thing good about what you've done is you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So each, each of these seven churches, there'll be a statement about the condition of the church. The fifth thing is there's a plan of action. A plan of action, what God tells them to do about their condition. In verse 5, he says, remember, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Remember, repent, do the deeds you did at first. And then there's a promise for overcomers. And so in verse 7, he says that whoever overcomes will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. The fourth and last opening observation is that John is writing to the church. 
So chapter 1, verse 11, he's told to write to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 1, he's told to write to this, this, to this specific church, Ephesus. Now look at this, let's look at this letter inside of this book to the church at Ephesus and see what it tells us. There's three primary things that, that God does here. Number one, God affirms the church. He affirms the church. And there are five things that he affirmed. Number one, they did the right things. In verse two, they didn't tolerate evil people or leaders. They did the right things. Number two, they gave the right effort. Verse two again says they toiled. They toiled. They worked hard. The third thing that he affirms is they refused to give up. In verse two and three, they persevered. The fourth thing he did, they qualified leaders. Verse 2, they made sure that the leaders were actually following the Lord. I've got verse 2 there. Uh, yep, that's in verse 2. And then number 5, they dealt with problem people. They dealt with problem people. Now, verse 6, it says that, that it tells us that God hated the Nicolaitans these people are mentioned again in the church of Pergamum. The word Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. These were apparently people in the church who sought to manipulate and control other people, most likely through pretending to be more spiritual than everybody else and have a connection with God that other people didn't have. They probably often said the words, God told me, or God this, or God that, as if other people didn't have that kind of relationship with God. In verse uh, 3 there, uh, actually verse, verse uh, 2, they, they, they put to test those who call themselves apostles. These likely were similar to the people that he was talking about here. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Jot that verse down. Let no one keep defrauding you, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So this is one of the ways these people would take advantage of you. Well, I've had this vision from God. See, I've got something with God you don't have. I'm more godly than you. I'm more spiritual than you. I have something you don't have. I've had this vision. And that what, what he says here in Colossians is, they take this stand on visions, they are inflated without cause in their own fleshly minds. Truth is, they didn't really have a vision. They just had a bad uh, burrito that day or something, right? Now in Jude chapter 1, 16, jot this one down, Jude 1, 16. And there he speaks of people who are arrogantly, who, who speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And so one of, the, one of the great things this church did is it didn't put up with that. It didn't allow itself to be manipulated by people who tried to come off as hyper-spiritual and more godly than, who used the God told me card on people. So the first thing God does is God affirms the church and he affirms those five things. Now number two, then God challenges the church. He challenges the church. Now he talks about what's not good in verse four. And he said, you've left your first love. Now, what does it mean to lose your first love? It seems like they're doing all the right things, aren't they? He knew their deeds, they were good, they persevered, they toiled. 
They didn't put up with, with bad people. Let, 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 me, let me back up just a minute and go back to number five under, under, under number one and dealing with, with problem people. Sadly, in too many, it, the, the country is a perfect example of this right now. Right now, our country is a big dog being wagged by small tail. There are mobs of people threatening and doing violence that are dictating what our country does and doesn't do. We're not dealing with the problem people. In churches, this often happens. In churches, if you've been in churches anytime for a long period of time, you've probably and been really involved, you've seen the dynamics of the church and who runs the church and, and all those kinds of things. You find out who the good leaders are. You find out who the bad guys are who mess everything up. And in most churches, they never deal with problem people. And in, in churches, too often, the wrong people win the battles because the good people play by one set of rules, the bad people play by another. The good people keep trying to be nice, and the bad people don't care anything about being nice. And so basically, whoever has the loudest voice or whoever barks the loudest is the one who'll get his way in that church. Has anybody seen this besides me? Okay, it's a real, real common thing. And one of the healthiest things we did here a long, long time ago is we decided the tail would never wag the dog and hadn't done it. And so we try to be kind, but we're, we're, we'll be firm. You know, we're not go we haven't let people, uh, ungodly people hurt and destroy our church. Uh, so many have tried. And uh, it's one of the things we do. In healthy, in healthy families, you do this. You don't let the kid run the house. In healthy churches, you don't let the person misbehaving determine the culture of the church and the atmosphere of the church. So you got to do that. And in a country, we shouldn't be doing it either. But right, as you know, the people in power, the people who want to be in power, are all just rolling the dice, hoping that whatever they're doing or not doing is going to help them get elected in November. And in the meantime, aren't we glad we don't live downtown in a major city? where you're liable to be burned out and the police are liable to not even show up because the mayor told them not to. So sad thing, the tail wagging the dog. This church didn't let the tail wag the dog. And that's a very healthy thing. Now, God challenges the church, number two, in verse four again, you've left your first love. They're doing all the right things. So what, is it, what, were they, what does this mean, you've left your first love? Here's what I think it means. Now, put in your outline. The people were serving the Lord mechanically, that's the word I've chosen, rather than wholeheartedly. Mechanically. They go through the motions. Listen to Isaiah 29 verse 13. This people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote by repeating it over and over. So here, he, here in Isaiah, he's talking about people who are mechanically serving the Lord. Their heart's not really in it anymore. And basically, they just go through the traditions and, uh, and, and, and that's, their, that's their faith. You know, this is one of the dangers of doing things like some churches have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Uh, 
you know, some churches will do things like that. Others will have uh, uh, other kinds of rituals that you might do, like in a Catholic church, a more uh, formal kind of church. And in those things, if you do them over and over and over, eventually nobody's even paying attention. It's why you don't just repeat the Lord's Prayer. You can repeat it and not even know what you're saying because you've repeated it a thousand times. The Lord's Prayer is not the Lord's Prayer. It's a disciple's prayer. And he didn't give it. He didn't say pray this. He said pray like this. It's a prayer outline. We're not supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer. We're supposed to use the outline to determine our prayers. I'll tell you a funny one on Bing the other night, just for a little humor here. Bing is, uh, what's he, six now? And so we, uh, all, we had all the grandkids at the house Friday night. And so Bing was saying the, the, good, the bedtime prayer. And so he starts off pretty good. He's thanking God for food. And, 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 and the kids will be real thoughtful when they pray. And so he's thanking God for food. And then the next thing you know, he's thanking God for, uh, for natural resources, for uh, all these other things, for science. for all. And, and what he's doing is all the stuff he's been learning in school, he's praying about it. So he just fires it out there. So Betsy had a hard time not cracking up while she was listening to all that. But anyway, that was, that was his, uh, his innocent little prayer. You see, prayer is to be heartfelt. Prayer is not to be rushed. It's not to be some automatic thing we do with our mind out of gear. But see, the truth is you can serve God with your whole mind and heart out of gear. Came to church, I did it. Put some money in the plate, did it. Went to community group, did it. Went on a mission trip, did it. And you're doing the right kinds of things, but you're doing them mechanically, not wholeheartedly. When we lose our first love, when we have our first love, we serve God wholeheartedly. Now, why do we lose our first love? I'm going to give you some, some, some reasons. Number one is disobedience. Disobedience. When we start to disobey the Lord, our heart distances, distances itself from him. Isaiah 59, 2 tells us our sin separates us from God. This separation starts in our head, our hearts, our emotions, which hearts in Scripture means kind of spiritual, our, our spiritual mind, our mind, and our emotions. Kind of puts all those together. When Christians mess up, they've messed up before they messed up. Did you get that? When a Christian messes up, he does something he shouldn't do. He messed up before he messed up and did something he shouldn't do. What happened? He left his first love. He left his first love. His first love now is that sin. That's what he wants more than he wants God's favor. So every time a Christian messes up, he messes up before he messes up. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. Our sin keeps, us, keeps lost people from knowing God. It keeps saved people from being close to God. Matthew 22.37 tells us that the greatest and most important commandment is to love God first and best. The choice to sin is loving our sin more than we love God. It really is. God, I know what you want me to do. But I'd rather do this than do what you want me to do. Because at this moment, that matters more to me than your pleasure. 1 John 5, 3 tells us this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. 
When you lose your first love, obedience starts to become a burden. When you're walking in your first love, it's never a burden. God wants to do what? Okay. But when you lose your first love, obedience becomes a burden. We're supposed to do what? As a Christian, I have to do what? Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, I know. I know I'm supposed to go to church. Let's go. See, it's just mechanical. So disobedience is one of the reasons we lose our first love. Number two is physical fatigue. Physical fatigue. Physical energy is linked to spiritual vitality. That's why God told us to rest one day a week. Our spiritual lives are not totally disconnected from our physical lives. Abnormal tiredness leads to problems. It leads to relational problems. When I got married, a friend of mine, uh, his dad had told him this. He got married six months or so before we did. And uh, his dad told him, he said, you'll have almost every argument you have in your marriage when you're tired and hungry. I just go do a survey and see if that isn't true. When you're tired and hungry. It changes how you feel, how you see life. Well, same thing happens. Abnormal tiredness creates spiritual problems. Elijah was physically drained after Mount Carmel. If you remember, he ran this huge distance to Mount Horeb where he met the Lord. And when he got there, he was physically exhausted. And so you remember what God told him to do? He said, memorize uh, the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. No, that's not what he told him to do. You need to memorize some scripture. That's not what he told him to do. Uh, you need to pray for five days and you need to fast and you need to, you know what I tell him to do? Rest and sleep and eat. Rest, sleep and eat. Rest, sleep and eat. That's how he recovered. And that's why God gave us seven days and said, one of them, I want you to rest and sleep and eat. All you old people, let's get an amen out of that, Okay. Most spiritual thing you can do on Sunday afternoon is take a nap. So that's what, that's what Elijah needed to do. You remember? He was so down, he wanted to die. All he needed was to catch up physically. So physical fatigue can obviously cause you to lose your first love. The third one, which is tied right into it, is emotional exhaustion. Emotional exhaustion. Like physical fatigue, it drains the spiritual life out of a person. This too was likely a part of Elijah's problem. Whenever you have a real adrenaline high, things are so great, you're going to come back to a corresponding low. I've told this story many times before, years ago. Uh, you know, we, I'd come here, we were next door, and we were having revivals, and there were some, some big preachers that I'd heard at Calvary Baptist when I was in college. They were the guys. I mean, churches all over the country, this was the handful of guys they all tried to get. And one of them was a guy named Bill Stafford. Some of you remember Bill Stafford, and some of you may have heard him elsewhere. But anyway, Bill Stafford was the first one that we got to come here. And uh, we wanted, you know, I wanted to take a good love offering for him. You know, we were in a very big church, and we were probably the smallest church he was in that year. And he came out here, and we gave him this huge love offering. I mean, it was huge. And, and the whole week here was, uh, he was here, I, I was just flying sky high. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. We got Bill Stafford. 
And then the church gave him this big offering, and I was so proud of our church. And, and, you know, he was pleased. He came back several times, just died, in fact, this past year. And, uh, you know, he, everything was just great, great, great. And about a week later, I had an adrenaline crash. And I remember thinking, well, I'll tell you what we gave. We gave him a $10,000 love offering for a four-day revival. Okay? And back in those days, church was barely taking care of me. Some of y'all remember that. And uh, I remember about a week later, I got thinking about it. And I was proud as can be of it a week ago, but I was tired now. The adrenaline had come down. And I thought, somebody's going to call me and say, Brother Rocky, can you come to the hospital and see so-and-so? And I want to say, call Bill Stafford. You're giving him all the money. <laughs> I had an adrenaline crash. Now, you'll have them too. Kind of a postpartum blues, kind of the same kind of thing. But you'll always have that. Elijah had that. Imagine the adrenaline being on Mount Carmel, calling fire down from heaven, killing all those false prophets. I mean, you talk about a big day. And then the next thing, he's emotionally crashed and he wants to die. Doesn't even want to live. Well, that's what can happen when you're emotionally exhausted. A person can only take so many losses, hits, and problems. Seriously, stress is good for us. Like when you, when you work out with weights. I say you because I don't, okay? But when you work out with weights, what you do is you stress your muscles, make them tired, then you rest them and they grow back stronger. That's the idea. You stress, rest, stress, rest. Now, distress is when you keep stressed. And when life, sometimes you don't have any control over it, it just puts you in distress, there's, all, there's so many problems, there's so many hits, and what happens, it drains the serotonin in your brain. Something chemical happens to you, and next thing you know, you're in some level of depression. And it doesn't mean you're not spiritual, it means you're human. And this happened, obviously, to Elijah, so much so, he wanted to die. I believe it's what happened to David. I think David was still grieving the loss of his dearest friend, Jonathan. And he was just, he was just empty. He was depleted emotionally. And that's why he wasn't out at the battlefield where he was supposed to be. It's why he was sleeping all day, which he shouldn't have been doing. And then he went up on the roof and saw his next door neighbor. And again, he had messed up before he messed up. Adrenaline crash. So you got to think about that. Whenever you have something huge, big, wonderful, there's going to be a crash come after it. It's likely why Moses blew his proverbial lid and didn't get into the promised land. There was just problem after problem, complaint after complaint, and it just, just kept nicking at Moses. And finally, he just reached a point of emotional exhaustion. You're listening to Dr. Rocky Ramsey speak on how we lose our first and most important love in Christ from the Revelation series. Tune in next time as he continues to speak on emotional exhaustion and more. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. You're listening to Coryton Cast, the official podcast of Coryton Church. If you have any questions at all, visit us online at CoryptonChurch.com or drop us a message or comment on social media. We're at Coryton Church. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we pray God's richest blessings on your life. Give us a rating, hit subscribe, and have a fantastic day.